The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Chan, West Coast columnist for Reuters Breaking News. This week, we went to Silicon Valley to talk to Scott Cooper, managing partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. His fundraising how-to book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, tries to alleviate the information disadvantage for entrepreneurs seeking startup capital, who probably have never tried to raise money before. Cooper's advice stems from listening to countless founder pitches and investing in some of them as part of one of the biggest VCs in the Valley. With about $7.5 billion under management, Andreessen has backed Facebook, Airbnb, Lyft, and other household names. He also worked on the other side of the scene, joining computing power startup LoudCloud, which was co-founded by his current bosses, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. Cooper also spent the early part of his career as a banker for tech companies, so he has seen the industry from many angles. Secrets of Sand Hill Road breaks down the world of limited partners, term sheets, and stock options in a way that isn't intimidating or boring. Founders are told about how to balance their different stages of investors and what to do when one founder wants to leave the fold. Cooper also brings you inside the thinking of VCs, why they choose certain investments over another, and who they have to answer to, namely LPs. With the surge of tech IPOs this year, from ride-hailing app Uber to image-sharing service Pinterest, Cooper's timely book provides pragmatic insights for founders hoping to start the next unicorn. So, Scott, I wanted to uh, ask you sort of big picture looks at uh, the VC ecosystem and founders and how they work together, which yeah. is you know a lot of what you sort of talk about and uncover in your book and sort of, you know, peel back the curtains for uh, for people, for particularly in the founder space. And I found your book to be very practical, but not feeling like I'm in business school. You know, it was very <laughs> readable and sort of conversational. Okay, um, so it was, uh, it was a much easier read than I expected it to be. But because it, it was so practical, I was curious as to what your impressions are about founders being good chief executives and good business people yeah. because i don't know if those things naturally translate from one to another yeah. um especially if you're an engineer and you you're a great products person does that really mean that you'll also be able to run a business yeah yeah that's a really good question so we um particularly at Andreessen Horowitz, we definitely have a predilection for backing that type of entrepreneur. Yeah. So we, we like the idea of backing somebody who is kind of a product person. They don't necessarily have to be purely technical, but at least someone who has kind of product, the product vision for the company. We like that being married with the person who's also the CEO, who is ultimately you know deciding on resource allocation and everything else. Um, and we designed the firm in many ways to hopefully try and optimize for those individuals to be able to grow in over time, grow into the idea of being CEO over time, recognizing that you're right. They may not have a lot of those skills. In fact, some of those people may have never had a job before, right, before they started doing this. Uh, and so a lot of kind of what we do in terms of working with our companies is to hopefully help them grow into that long-term role. Um, and there's great examples in the tech market, right, of where that works well. Uh, it's great, right? So you've got, you know, Jeff Bezos and you've got Mark Zuckerberg and you've got, you know, obviously, uh, you know, kind of the original, you know, uh, Microsoft with Bill Gates mm -hmm. and certainly Larry, uh, you know, over at uh, Google. 
uh, and then Larry Ellison, the other one at Oracle. So yes. we like this idea of that affinity between those two roles. Um, now, the, the, the reality, as you point out, is it doesn't always work, right? And so in general, though, when we go into an investment decision, if we feel like at the time of the investment, we don't have confidence that they can you know, kind of transition to that role, we're probably more likely to just not make that investment as opposed to make it and then say, hey, great, let's swap this person out immediately because we just don't feel like that's actually a great way to build these companies. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are times, of course, sometimes downstream where if they can't scale into that role, then we have to have the conversation with the CEO and say, hey, look, you know, you've done a great job getting it to here, but the opportunity set you know, could be 5, 10x from where we are, and maybe it would be better to bring someone in who has a different skill set. Yeah, and how trainable are those skills like I've just being here now the last few months I've seen a lot of venture capital firms hold sort of like leadership seminars and and trying to sort of give the tools to these founders um, based on you know scaling recruiting talent like all these things that you know they they might not have been thinking about when they were first starting a company how easy or hard is that to teach yeah, we found, I mean, look, it's it's not easy, but we found it's actually pretty productive. So the way we kind of do things is we think about it in two ways, which is one is a set of networks and relationships that you might not have that we can help you augment. So uh, I'll just give you a simple example. One of our groups is focused on building relationships with CIOs and CTOs of you know large companies who might mm-hmm. be customers or business development partners. And so as a new CEO, you probably don't know who the CIO is at Goldman Sachs that you want to sell into. So if we can help you augment you know, that relationship mm-hmm. and therefore improve your sales cycles, that's helpful. So one piece of it is kind of, can we build the network where you may be lacking in the network? And then you're right. The other piece is, we call it counseling is kind of for lack of a better word, but okay, are there best practices? Are there things about, gee, when's the right time to hire a CFO and what's the profile of the CEO you need to bring in? Those things we do find are relatively kind of, you know, able to be encapsulated into either one-on-one conversations or more programmatic stuff. And do you find that most of the time they are amenable to hearing those thoughts? Or uh, yeah. It's, it's I think, also a yeah, very most, emotional yeah, it is. connection to yeah. your company. So sometimes, I don't know if that's hard to hear. It is. And I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of the receptivity is a question of, I think, how you approach the problem, right? So, you know, I think where it doesn't work is when you come in and you're like, hey, I'm the venture capitalist. I've done this a thousand times before. Mm. Let me tell you kind of, you know, you know, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, like why you should do this thing, right? I mean, I, you know, it's it's probably obvious, but that doesn't do well. What happens is if we've done a good job of building a relationship over time, and then you can have the conversation to say, hey, look, you just raised $100 million. The purpose of that money is to go grow your sales and marketing, right, to try to kind of increase the business. You know, here's why we think it might make sense to bring in a new head of sales who has experience with that type of build out, or here's why it might make sense to bring in a CFO who can help you kind of think about the business trade-offs of spending that money. For the most part, I would say, it's it's they're never like easy conversations, but it's not often contentious conversations. It's more that they may not just have thought about it before, and so it takes you know a couple conversations to help them understand you know why the value of that happens. And the other thing that we find, by the way, the other tactic that I think works well is we will often say, hey, look, let us just introduce you to a couple CFOs. These are not actually people who are looking for a job, so there's no conflict mm-hmm. here. They're not trying to convince you to hire them, but mm-hmm. let, let them help you understand what does a good CFO do, because that's often the more you know kind of challenging question, which mm-hmm. is if you've never hired a CFO before, Mm-mm. you probably have some preconceived notion about what it is, but if you can talk to a couple of CFOs and say, hey, great, like now I understand how this role could be additive to my organization, then I find it tends to be a much easier conversation. Okay, and what is the difference in terms of the the founders you come across today versus let's say 10 years ago because the amount of 
information that is available now, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, pitch book data or, right. or anything else. We're talking to your friends now that there are so many sort of startups out there. Um, are you finding they are more sophisticated? Yeah. Are they, you know, coming into it with much more information than you thought they would have? Yeah, I think the two big changes that have happened over the last 10 years are, um, uh, number one is exactly right, which is, look, the amount of information out there is just much greater. And if you think about it at a very simple balance of power level, kind of in the first 30, 40 years of venture capital, right, the venture capitalists had the money. Money was scarce. And so therefore, you know, the venture capitalists probably had more power relative to entrepreneurs. You know, in the last 10, 15 years, that's completely flipped, which is money is no longer scarce. There's plenty of it out there. And also, we've had this kind of, you know, more, you know, starting to see some reduction in the information asymmetry. And obviously, that's a lot of obviously, you know, why I wrote the book and what I hope, hope we can, uh, you know, help people understand. And so if you really think about it, balance of power today, the entrepreneurs have a much stronger position today relative to the VCs. And so, yeah, they're much more sophisticated when they come pitch, both about the business metrics and how we think about businesses. And they're much more sophisticated about running a process, which is a fair thing to do, running a competitive process, right? It's saying, hey, look, I'm not going to sole source this necessarily, but like, I'm going to talk to a couple different firms and make sure I kind of canvas it. And then I think the other thing that's happened, I, I don't know if empirically this is true, but it feels this way, which is you've had a change in the nature of entrepreneurs a little bit, which is, and particularly in the enterprise space. So it used to be in the enterprise space, kind of pre, call it 2000, the types of founders often had been in the enterprise world before, and so they probably had, they were probably, you know, just older period from an age perspective, but also had more kind of real life enterprise work experience. And I think that was because you used to have these very tops down enterprise focused kind of selling tactics mm -hmm. in the enterprise. Mm -hmm. The big change that's happened in enterprise over the last 10, 15 years is when you have, you know, SaaS applications and you have these kind of more bottoms up builds, the go to markets look a lot more like consumer in some respects than they do enterprise. And mm -hmm. so as a result, we also now see you know, younger, earlier in their career, founders and CEOs in the enterprise space hmm. taking things on, kind of that look, they look Wearing much more. And right, exactly, right. <laughs> yeah. They kind of look more like the consumer CEOs, mm -hmm. uh, which, we're, which, you know, we're used to. But I think that's a big change in, uh, you know, kind of just, you know, quite frankly, a demographic and an mm. experience level required for some of these companies. That's interesting. And with, uh, with founders and particularly with Andreessen and the company's philosophy on um, the importance of founders, how much of your evaluation of a startup is kind of, you know, gut check and intuition and, you know, because you are evaluating largely a, a person or a group of, you know, people versus the numbers. I mean, yeah. I know you talk about how market size is, is so important um, in terms of, you know, the potential of a company, but when you're weighing it where you don't have as much of a track record, you know, how are you balancing yeah. just, you know, from, a conversation, right. a feeling right. versus the the numbers of you know what this company could be. Yeah. Uh, so at the early stage, it's much more the former. It's much more the individual and the team than it is kind of the numbers, right? The numbers are a little bit of, it's you know I, I mentioned this in the book. Numbers are kind of like a it's a little bit of a what if question, right? So mm -hmm. do, can I just get myself comfortable that okay if everything goes right, do I think this can be a big enough business, right? That's kind of you know there's no magic spreadsheet exercise for it. It's kind of like okay does it does it make sense that the market demand for a service of this type could be, you know, insatiable to the point where, you know, you can build a big business. And once you get past that, you're right, most of the most of the conversation is around this team. So the question kind of quickly shifts to, okay, I buy the market. Now the question is, why do I invest in you versus any of the other teams that might walk in the door with the same idea, assuming that obviously markets are competitive and there will be multiple people in the market. And so we're trying to assess everything from kind of leadership skills to, you know, kind of um, 
you know, we, we use this term internally called an earned secret, right? Which is the secret is what do you know that no one else knows about this business? And the earned part is how did you get it, right? So, mm. you know, maybe it was your PhD thesis or maybe you just organically had to solve this problem and then you felt compelled to build a company around it. But something that helps us understand why this is almost a missionary-driven exercise for you as, a, as opposed to a purely mercenary-driven exercise. And so we're trying to assess all that. It's, it's, as you can imagine, it is way more art than science, but you know, we try to talk to as many references that the entrepreneur provides us as well as do backdoor references. We try to kind of do our own assessment based on the conversations we have with the entrepreneur as to the depth of their thinking around the product and the technology and both their ability to draw conclusions from data as well as to be open and malleable based on new data that might come in. So it's all of that kind of stuff that we're trying to essentially formulate. Yeah. And uh, in your book, you do offer a lot of practical information, um, including sort of what I feel like are doses of reality, you know, <laughs> especially when uh, you're starting a company and it's more than just you, it's a, maybe a group of your friends or whatever. Um, there is this sense that you are, you know, all in it together and, and all that. And you talk about, you know, what if one of the founders leaves or, you know, they don't want to be a yeah. part of this anymore. And there's some sort of disagreement about the direction of the company. Um, how important was it for you in the book to sort of not, you know, poke a hole in their dreams, but to provide that sort of dose of, of reality and you know, look more out into the future of, yeah. you know, the various possible things that could actually happen. Yeah, the goal the goal definitely was not to be a Debbie Downer, so yeah, I, hope, yeah. <laughs> I hope I didn't come across that way. But, but no. it was exactly that, which is, look, starting a company, first of all, as we know, is an incredibly hard and challenging thing to do. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is that there are lots of, you know, there, there's a great opportunity for success, but also a lot of these things we know just won't work. And that, you know, is not a normative statement about whether you're a good entrepreneur or not. Sometimes the businesses just don't take... And the reason I put that stuff in there is exactly what you described, which is I think it's just important as a founder to think about, okay, uh, there, you know, it's a very exciting time, but also think about what might change over time that might cause you to feel differently about the business or the people you're working for. And we've seen this many times, unfortunately, from firsthand experience where you have a set of you know, founders who start together and then you know, a couple of years in, sometimes for a variety of reasons, you know, one or more of them decides that they want to do something different or they can't scale with the business. And you get into these weird corner cases where Somebody may no longer be involved in the business, but they potentially have disproportionate voting power and or control at the board level. And so it's really more as a founder and a CEO, hopefully helping them understand that, look, you've got an obligation to ultimately do what's in the best interest of your company. And if you have people who are no longer contributing in the same way, at least think about what those corner cases might look like and try and anticipate that in the future, just like you would you know, think about how a competitor might respond to a new product launch. I mean, it's no different than that, these organizational dynamics are quite frankly probably as important, if not more important, in the successful development of the company than you know, kind of just you know your pure R and D efforts or your pure sales and go to market efforts. And how hard is it to talk to founders about some of those? You know, that everything may look great right yeah, now, but hard, yeah. down the road, and and also to frankly spend the money on a lawyer because. Right, right. It's especially if you're first starting out, that's not probably where you want yeah. to put uh, any of your capital, uh, but it could you know, obviously help you a lot in the long yeah. run. It, it is hard, and we do see a number of founders who you know, very politely listen to what we say, but then say, <laughs> okay, great, I'm gonna do something different. And look, at the end of the day, that's their prerogative, obviously. Yeah. You know, it's, not, it's not for us to tell them how to run the company. Mm -hmm. um, but it is hard, and again, what we try to do is, I think it, it goes back to the approach of how we talk to them, which is we try to do it not from the perspective of, hey, you know, 
I've seen this a million times, you know, I'm the VC, I know more than you, but just say, hey, look, this is human nature, these, these things mm-hmm. happen, and just think about it as you would any other aspect of your life, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a little planning can go a long way in these things. But, mm-hmm. but look, we have plenty of founders who, you know, as I said, who say, look, I, I, I'm not concerned about that, that's not gonna happen, and, you know, unfortunately sometimes when those things do happen, uh, you know, you, you have to kind of clean them up as best as you can, you know, even uh, with, without the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, and you also talk about, with VCs, that the important thing is the number of times at bat. Right, right. How has that changed given the increase in competition, it seems, and the amount of um, VCs that are out there when you need so many number of times at bat to then yeah. hopefully get one of those winners that will um, you know, make up for some of the the not so great picks in your portfolio. Yeah, it's definitely, the industry has gotten tougher. I think the industry, at least certainly since we've been in it, is probably as competitive as it's ever been. And, mm. and it's, and, and it's not, not that it wasn't competitive before, but I think it's gotten increasingly competitive in part because of what you described, which is you've got you know, entrepreneurs who are much you know, more well-informed, first of all, about the process. So you know, kind of they, they rightfully so kind of leverage those competitive dynamics. And then you just got more venture firms, period, particularly at the kind of seed stage, right? There's a huge influx of you know, hundreds of new seed firms that have changed the competitive dynamic. So it, it, does change, it does change the business a lot. I mean, I think it doesn't change, I think, how we think about the overall portfolio, which is as much as we think we know about these companies when we invest in them, you know, I'm not sure that any VC could probably accurately predict the company that they invested in 10 years ago and that goes public in 10 years, whether they actually you know, believe that one would go public or someone else in their portfolio would. Um, in fact, you know, uh, uh, one of the VCs when we first started the business, and I will leave them nameless so I don't uh, uh, you know, embarrass them, said every year the firm tries to stack rank their companies and predict where they think the winners are gonna come and every year consistently do it and they're, they're never right, which is companies that they think are gonna be great turn out not to be great and companies they think are gonna be bad, many of them turn out to be good. And so it is a, I think the only way you can manage this business is to think about it in the context of a full portfolio. Yeah. But it's, it's certainly, uh, there's no question the competitive dynamics have dramatically increased in the business. And you also talk about uh, certain instances where you know a, a founder sets out in his business, is, is executing, and then realizes that maybe certain things that he thought about the market or the product is, um, not panning out the way he thought and the way uh, some have been able to pivot on that. And you, you mentioned the Instagram story, which sure, I thought yeah. was really interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that yeah. history, um, the history in there. Story, yeah. And obviously that was like a great uh, sense of foresight uh, on their part. But how difficult is it to have that conversation? Because I imagine as a founder, it's I mean, it's hard to admit it to yourself yeah. and then to admit it to your investors yeah. that things aren't really working out yeah. quite the way you had thought and then for the investors to actually trust that that person still has the vision the capabilities to then execute on whatever the next iteration is yeah it's a uh, it's interesting and, and the instagram story for people who don't know it right was originally this company called bourbon which was essentially like a four square kind of like location-based app and um you know kevin sistrom and his co-founders kind of rightfully decided that, uh, you know, picture taking was a better, better <laughs> application. Obviously, you know, history, they've been proven correctly. You know, Slack is another one, right, that mm-hmm. just went public in our mm-hmm. portfolio where, you know, Stuart was building a, literally a multi, you know, player, uh, you know, game. Yeah, that, that was fascinating abandoned too. And, yeah. and, you know, kind of salvaged this communications tool they built. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually interesting. The good news is 
Look, the entrepreneurs are way smarter than the venture capitalists on this. And so in both of those instances, it was not the venture capitalists coming to them and saying you should pivot. It was the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. saying, hey, mm -hmm. through our process of being in market and iterating, kind of like we've kind of come to this. And look, when when that happens, you know, look, the the, the success level still, you know, is, is challenging on these. They don't they don't all work out like Instagram and Slack do. Yeah. But um, but I think when that when it works that way, it works great, which is when the entrepreneur says, hey, look, I've, I had this idea. It turns out I, I tested it in the market and I got feedback from the market that actually caused me to, to do something different. You know, that's the perfect way to do it. I think I think where these are probably destined to fail in all cases is if you've got the venture capitalist coming to the entrepreneur saying, hey, it looks like that's not working. Why don't you try this? Um, I think, number one, we've probably overstepped our bounds as a venture capitalist because to pretend that we know enough about what's happening in the internal workings of the company and to be able to interpret the CEO's articulation of the market data and for us to make some kind of product decision, you know, I think, you know, quite frankly, probably God help us both, right? That's probably just not a place for us to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so those don't work well. But I think these kind of entrepreneur-led pivots where mm. it's just the open-mindedness they take to market feedback that leads them there, you know, that's a wonderful place to be. And then, then it just requires the VC to hopefully have enough confidence in that team to say, okay, I'm willing to let this thing ride and see what they come up with. And I think, I think you'll find in most cases, most VCs will probably, you know, be willing to do that unless, you know, there's some kind of crazy thing or something. In most cases, I think, you know, the idea of getting back, you know, pennies on the dollar on your investment by doing a fire sale as opposed to allowing the entrepreneur to try something new with the remaining money in the company, I think most people are, are open to that prospect. Yeah. And is that part of why you strongly believe that, you know, people who have, as you put it, strongly held beliefs but loosely <laughs> held are yes. the ones that will be able to succeed? I think that's right. And I think it's true for VCs too, which mm -hmm. is, so I think on the entrepreneur side, you're mm -hmm. right, is, look, if this is your life's mission, your life's pact, and if in a 30-minute conversation, you know, we can convince you to do something different, you know, again, <laughs> that that raises some questions about, like, the level of your conviction. Mm -hmm. But it's also the case, yes, that, look, you, you know that until you get a product into market, all of your assumptions are purely that. You have actually no idea what's going to happen. And so this idea that you have loosely held, you know, beliefs at that point in time based on real data is important. And it's the same for us. Like, we talk about our business all the time, which is a lot of people ask me, okay, like, what's the next great thing that you guys should mm -hmm. invest in? And uh, I always give an answer, which I don't think anybody likes, but I think it's a true answer, is um, we need to have ideas and theses about things, but our real job is actually to follow the talent and to listen to what the entrepreneurs are doing and then go do the work based on what they're telling us because, you know, that's kind of our equivalent of, you know, strong beliefs loosely held is, look, we may believe that cloud is the next great thing, but if we don't see entrepreneurs doing it or we see entrepreneurs doing something that's in a tangential space, and they can convince us that it makes sense. Like we need to be able to kind of have loosely held beliefs that allow us to kind of, you know, focus on the areas where the entrepreneurs are bringing us. Yeah, and you talked about in your book um, the fact that companies are staying private Absolutely. longer yeah. and how that affects, you know, all the various bells and whistles that go into how the startup is is set up and its relationship with its investors, including uh, and its employees, whether yeah. on on vesting and other issues. You also talk about you know, having to balance um, investors who are coming in at various stages of the company. How does that work then when uh, these companies are staying private longer and you're seeing like a series G, a series H? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it seems like the the longer you stay private, the more that the various investors are not aligned yep. in terms of their interests and, and yep. how do you balance all of that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a real challenge and you're right. So it used to be kind of six, six and a half years for mm -hmm. companies to go public from founding. Now it's probably ten or twelve years and I don't think we're going to 15 years on that, but I'm not sure we're going back to six, six and a half years anytime. So I think this is something that we will have to deal with as an industry for quite some time. 
Uh, but you're exactly right. This is where I think these things get challenging. Is you know, if I'm the initial A round investor and I have a you know, I'm making this up, but if I've got a you know, five cent cost basis in my business in in my stock, I might think differently than the person who comes in with a fifty dollar cost basis at that Series G about should we sell the company or not, mm-hmm. and you know, things of these sorts. So, the the best advice we try to give, and I try in the book to outline this, is. You just have to really think about those things, and you have to think about the corner cases where incentives may no longer be aligned, and make sure you know you're not giving disproportionate control to somebody from a governance perspective that's that's not proportionate with their economic interest. And so sometimes on these later stages, you know, people come in and they say, "Well, I'm only going to own two percent of the company, but you know, I want an outsized influence on whether we're going to go public or whether we're going to sell the company." And you know, there are some times where you know maybe that is the right thing to do just because that's what the options are on the table, but the more you can avoid that and kind of as much as you can put all the investors in the same boat where you say, hey, look, we all kind of, we're all repeat players in this business, so we all have an incentive, number one, to kind of play nicely with one another. And the idea that somebody should have holdout rights or something like that is, uh, you know, kind of a more dangerous place to be. Yeah. And how easy is that to game out, especially when you are starting out and then you're talking, you yeah. know, years and years from now yeah. to have, you know, a big enough option pool or, right, you know, right. various other things that gives you the wiggle room to yeah, it, keep it's, going. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard to game out. And I think it's probably, you probably can't really game it out for what might happen because obviously, look, we have no idea what's going to happen. But I think what you can do at the early stage is at least, and, and I, I think I have this mentioned in the book, which is keep it simple as much as, much as you can and for as long as you can. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, think about, okay, like, how long can we, you know, at the early stages, don't start to put in votes where you give, you know, different investors, you know, their own vote on certain things, right? Make all the investors kind of one class and have to vote together on things of that sort. Don't put fancy bells and whistles about this kind of crazy anti-dilution protection or that kind of crazy, you know, ratchet and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's, all, there's things like that where they may seem like they're good ideas at the beginning. The problem is they all become precedent for every round after that. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for you to unwind those and so you, even as the VC, may have been, you know, you may have patted yourself on the back because you're like, hey, I got this great right early on in the deal. And now the B round investor comes and wants it and the C round investor comes. And now you've created this, you know, kind of Frankenstein of, uh, of a capital structure. So the most, I think, the biggest way to anticipate those problems is just keep things as simple as possible in the term sheet as long as you can. And therefore, you haven't created precedent for some of those downstream investors. And another thing you talk about in your book, aside from some of the technical financial issues, are, are on the governance front, yeah. uh, which I think is actually really interesting um, because it's, you know, one of those things where um, it, the problems that can come up uh, later on on that front um, are sometimes harder to deal with than the financial yeah. ones. And you mention uh, the Uber case in sure. in your book with. Uh, with um, Travis uh, Kalanick and then, you know, what what happened afterwards. Um, I've been really f- interested, and I don't know the answer, as to what you do when a, co- a company is in trouble, and part of it's because of the founder, but he's also so instrumental yeah. to the vision yeah. of the company that without him, it probably wouldn't be a success. Yeah. And I know, um, the SEC had even wrestled with this in the uh, in, in the, the Tesla, Tesla case, case right, yeah, yeah, with Elon Musk, yeah. where you know you obviously want to deter certain behaviors, but if you also hurt him too much, then you 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 will actually hurt investors, yeah. and the stock yeah. will tank, and you know you don't want that to happen either. I mean, yeah. how how do you deal with 
a founder in, in that kind of situation. Yeah, it's a real interesting problem. And you're right, the Tesla one, you know, when I read all the SEC stuff, it, it, you're exactly right, which is you've got on the one hand, the SEC's job is they've got to maintain orderly capital markets, right? And so, you know, if they believe that, you know, Elon said something that he wasn't supposed to say, like you want to obviously reprimand that behavior. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right. If you go to the point of saying, okay, well, maybe he should no longer be chairman or maybe he shouldn't be CEO. Um, at some point, look, you know, for a company like that, presumably you do you do have the potential at least for do massive like harm to the actual shareholders themselves, which is clearly not in the SEC's best interest. So it's, it's really hard. And I think, look, there's no easy answers, but that's exactly the calculus that you have to do in those situations is, okay, you know, if we remove the CEO, is there a business here or not? And if, if people can't get comfortable with that, then are there other alternatives? So could you put a COO in there or something as a way to kind of try to help deal with some of the maybe rough edges or some of the, the kind of skill sets that they're missing? Or maybe you put a you know new chairman into the board who is kind of, kind of quasi like an executive chairman, so has a little bit more day-to-day -day kind of engagement with the company. Um, but you're absolutely right. I don't know if there, I don't know that there's a right answer other than I think, you know, you just have to, as a board member, you've got to think about your ultimate constituency is look, you're accountable to the common shareholders of that yeah. business. And so you got to make sure you do something that clearly, you know, there's easy cases, which is look, if somebody's doing something illegal, it's pretty hard to argue yeah. that they don't go. But there's these corner cases where it's not necessarily legal, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's behavior you don't like, or maybe it's creating a culture you don't like. And either you try to repair that with the CEO or you put more management in, or at some point, I think you do have to make that decision that, hey, look, we, we have to go put somebody else in that seat. Yeah. And in your experience, have you found that putting someone who acts as sort of the grown-up, quote-unquote, works? I mean, there is obviously when, um, when Facebook was going through some of its growing pains, they brought in Cheryl and there was a sense that she was going to be, you know, the adult in the room and right. that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know how often it actually works in practice. Yeah, I think it really depends on, I think if your goal is hiring a grown-up, that's probably a bad, I don't think that's the right objective for an executive, mm -hmm. right? I think mm -hmm. the objective is, okay, like what, what skill set does the company need and where can it be? So where these things tend to work, um, uh, I'll give you actually, um, you know, a great example in our portfolio. Uh, we're investors in a company called PagerDuty, which has mm -hmm. gone off to be a public company and done very well. And there wasn't a grown-up question there. There was a question of, okay, like for that company to continue to scale, we needed enterprise sales expertise. We needed someone who really understood how to build and maintain an enterprise sales organization. And in that case, uh, we brought in this woman, Jen Tejada, who's done a fantastic job. And she and the founder um, got along really well. And the founder also recognized that like to get the company to the next level, it made sense to bring that expertise in. That, those are kind of, that's the good scenario where those things work out. I think though, if, you're, if your real goal is you're saying, hey, look, we're trying to bring adult supervision in, you gotta remember these are product companies fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And if you lose kind of the product mentality for these businesses, then I think you have a real, real challenge for how these businesses can sustain growth over time. And uh, you know, so I think I think you've got to be very clear on what you're trying to solve for uh, before you think about those things. And, and yeah, I agree, it's probably not a good idea if you're basically solving for grown-up supervision. You probably have a more foundational problem that you need to deal yeah. with some other way. Yeah, it's beyond just right. <laughs> musical chairs. I think that's and, probably yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you also talk about we we mentioned earlier about the importance of of market size. Um, I've been really interested in seeing some of the um, the IPO filings that have come out this year about uh, what some of these companies see as their quote like totable address total right. addressable market. Yeah, and what you guys think about um, those kinds of notions because sometimes it seems like they're basically capturing 
everyone on the whole planet <laughs> and I'm yeah. kind of like is that really the market yeah. size that seems like a really big market size yeah um you know how realistic do you think some of these companies are are being and not not really just the ones that have gone public but just yeah. in general and the ones that you see about the potential customer base yeah look I mean I think particularly when we're looking at the early stage uh, you know, we want that kind of expansive view, right? Mm -hmm. We, we want to see entrepreneurs who tell us, like, who have their whole vision of what this market could look like over time. And then, look, it's our job then to go test those assumptions and see if they make sense. I, I haven't looked at some of these S1 filings. I mean, look, at some point in time, you have to actually, you know, obviously those are legal disclosure filings. So I'm guessing those have been vetted by uh, lawyers sure. many, many times. Uh, Very but, expensive lawyers. Exactly, sure. right, yeah. yeah. But, but look, we, we like that idea. And I think it is true. Look, the biggest change that's happened in this business over time is that market sizes have gotten bigger, right? When you've got everybody walking around with these, you know, cell phone supercomputers in their pockets and four and a half billion people connected, you know, to the internet, it dramatically changes what the opportunity set is for these companies. Mm -hmm. So I do think this is a fundamental reshift that's happening both in the private markets and the public markets, which is these markets are just bigger than anyone ever anticipated. And I think people are still, quite frankly, getting their heads around them. So whether these are kind of aspirational market sizes or whether, in fact, they're true, you know, it's not clear. It's not clear that they're not, in fact, true if you believe in the kind of penetration of, you know, mobile deployment and of Internet, you know, accessibility and the kind of ease of use that a lot of these new, you know, kind of applications provide. Yeah. And how um, important is it to be creative about how you view market size where you talk about you know some companies like airbnb yeah. where it wasn't just the hotel market right. or an uber where you're just looking at the taxi yeah. market it's really it's really important and again look you have to you have to not kid yourself into believing that's the case but you know if you believe it's often the case that the existence of a new technology creates use cases that didn't exist before right mm -hmm. and so Look, Lyft's a great example, right? So, you know, you could have used the taxi market, but the reality is, like, what is the proportion of people who don't use the taxi market today, but who would find that the ability to call a car from my phone uh, is a better alternative than either walking or driving my own car or going on public transportation? And, you know, the Airbnb case, right? People who might not have gone on vacation before, uh, you know, because either hotels were prohibitively expensive or they couldn't get to the particular locations that they wanted to be in because the hotels weren't there. So I think I think that's important. I think that's part of the job of the entrepreneur is to help us understand how can technology actually drive like you know broader market adoption than we've seen before, and and the good entrepreneurs know how to tell tell that story. Yeah. And I know since we are pressed for time, yep. I will um, just ask you one last question. Sure. Uh, since your book is called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, <laughs> um, I want to ask you, what is the the secret that you've learned through your years of experience that you feel like has helped you the most you know, be successful in this space? The biggest secret I think I've learned is when I first started in the business, I would have thought that success or failure of a company would be largely determined by the product. Hmm. And... Uh, well, it is true that, you know, at some point in time, obviously, you have to sell a product the market uh, makes. It's also true that there are a lot of products that work, but the companies fail because they have some kind of organizational dysfunction that doesn't allow them to succeed, right? They don't hire people at the right time. They don't hire the right executives. They don't kind of think about their go-to-market in a way. And, you know, we all immediately fixate on product, which is great. But, but this kind of goes back to kind of that original thing we talked about, which is this is why team becomes such an important valuation for these, because products will change, markets will change, people will respond to that stuff. Inherently, I think people probably don't change or at least change relatively little compared to products and markets. Mm -hmm. And so understanding kind of what's the team that you're working with, what their core skill sets are, their ability to adapt, to think about organizational change and kind of, you know, management skills and things of that sort become, I think, a lot of the determinant between success and failure for these businesses. And so really important for us as we think about making investments. And that determines whether you're a Friendster or Facebook. I think that's end. right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, or you're Google, you're the 30-something 
you know, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, uh, search engine out there. You know, a lot of these things are not new ideas, right? And in fact, a lot of ideas that exist today, like Instacart, you know, there used to be this company, Webvan, that you may recall from many, many years ago. So the ideas themselves, they're not all, you know, kind of not new, but there are many ideas that are out there in the public domain. And the question often becomes the fitness of this team and the ability of this team to execute against that vision versus just the idea or the product that they've conceived of. Okay, great. Well, I now live just off of Sand Hill Road, so I'm hoping oh, some of the secrets rub <laughs> off on me at some point. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks I appreciate for having it. me. I appreciate it. That's it for now. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producer, Freddie Joyner, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Gina Chan. Thanks for tuning in.